This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. So you want to get into the daily fantasy thing, get those competitive juices flowing, and maybe even win some cash. But Coach Nick, you say, there are too many gosh darn teams and players and stats and lineups. Well, don't worry. All is well because there's a new app for that. It's called No Halftime, and you can pick one player or one team and challenge others. Pit LeBron James versus Steph Curry, or James Harden versus Russell Westbrook or Sasha Vujicic versus Nikola Vucevic. It takes seconds to set up, and it can be public or private. No halftime is not only for the NBA, but tons of other sports. It's fun, it's addicting, and you'll get a $20 bonus by entering promo code COACH at sign-up. Leave the break in the middle of the game to us coaches. For you, there's no halftime. Are the Thunder really title contenders? What holds them back from being better? How important is the effective coaching at the NBA level? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I hope that you're listening to this on our brand new mobile app because it sounds so much better that way. And I'm pleased to bring on Sekou Smith, a senior analyst from NBA.com and NBA TV, and a guy that I've known since I started B-Ball Breakdown. Sekou, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, No problem, Coach. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm kind of reeling uh, after watching that uh, Clippers-Oklahoma City game last night. Did you get a chance to check it out? Yeah, I, I did. I, I watched it back. Um, I was on the set on NBA TV last night when they got cranked up, so I, I had to watch it back this morning. But uh, another ugly finish for the Thunder, you know, just not being able to to make plays and to make the best decisions down the stretch, and it's really starting to haunt that team. Yeah, and you know it's funny because I've sort of been harping on this for a long time, for you know, for years, and um, I'm wondering if now um, people are starting to get a little bit more toward where I had been. Um, you know, I, I think that the argument tended to be that, like, look at their overall ranking and their record, and I used to say, well, that's okay, but if you want to judge them by a you know a championship um, level here then there's something missing and it seems to me that they can't really they can't hide behind injuries right now they're healthy and they have you know a roster that's that's playing so what are your thoughts is this a title contending team um i don't think so right now and i think it has a lot to do with the fact that 
they are playing a style of basketball that's really out of date, <clears throat> excuse me, in the NBA. They're playing through their star players at the end of games, and they're not really running sets. They're just doing isolation hero ball and hoping that Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook can make some magical play happen instead of running sets that allow them to get the best shot, whether it's for one of those guys or somebody else. Um, and to me, that's a dangerous way to play when you're talking about winning a championship because as we saw – you know, last year in the finals, for three games, Steph Curry wasn't able to get loose the way he was used to. And, they, you know, and the Warriors needed somebody else to be able to step up and make a play. And they were well-versed enough in what they did and how they liked to, to play and spread the ball around that they were able to do that. And I just don't see Oklahoma City as having those alternative options when Kevin Durant or Russell, you know, Westbrook aren't making really just outlandish, you know, superstar plays. I, I hear you. I mean, yeah, because that's the key is they can make those plays against the bottom – 20 bottom 22 defenses in the league routinely that's not even the issue but I think what happens is that it hides the fact that you know they don't have you know it's kind of like I'll use this example if you if you unplug if you have a really good you know a band and you, you, you go acoustic you know then you really get to hear what kind of songs they wrote and what kind of songwriting craft and I feel like what we're struggling with now with OKC is that when you strip it down the foundation isn't there uh, there is no side-to-side -side movement. Even that when, when KD got ripped by Wes Johnson on that crossover, there had been no movement. It was an attack out on top into the teeth of the defense, um, and it makes guys like Wes Johnson, who isn't, hasn't been a hero on defense for his career, it makes him look like he's the best defender in the league. Um, you know, knowing coaches and knowing how coaches like to coach and how they like to get in there and, and, and having a positive effect on a team, it doesn't feel – like, you know, Billy Donovan has been able to put a stamp, like, you know, certainly not what the kind of offense we'd seen in college. So what do you make of that and, and you know, how much influence he either has or doesn't have? Well, I think it's tough when you come into a situation like Donovan did where you've got two established stars and a winning tradition, you know, for the franchise in terms of they didn't bring him in there to tear down what they've been doing and, and rebuild it. They brought him in there to take – you know, what Scotty Brooks had done and, and push it to the next level. But doing that would require you to really deconstruct, you know, the, the formula. You know, you'd have to somehow find a way to get R Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant to play in a way that they would be willing to give the ball up at certain points and get it back. You know, so instead of taking a really difficult shot, per se, on offense, they give it up, run, you know, run off the screen or run through a set and then get an easier shot. And when you had two guys who were used to going, you know, just blowing to the basket if you're Westbrook or pulling up from wherever if you're Durant, that's a much more difficult task for a coach and certainly a rookie NBA coach, a guy who's never coached in the league, to come in and say, hey, this is what I did at Florida when I won a couple championships and put together an unbelievable, you know, Hall of Fame college career. We're going to do it here in the NBA with the Oklahoma City Thunder, a team that's been to the finals and won at a high level, you know, for the past few years scrap all that, you're going to run my offense. You know I mean? I just don't know that that kind of attitude would have worked um, in terms of him making that transition from college to the NBA. So I'm trying to picture the, the scene. I guess it's, it's training camp. Donovan is, you know, shaking hands and introduced himself. And maybe he's hung out a little bit in the, in the summer, but he comes in there or in theory, he'd be like, okay, here are our top 10, you know, sets that we're going to run. And here's what we do with them. How here's how we're going to break them down. And when, like, is the scene that KD and, and Russ are just going to stand there and look at him and be like, uh-uh, or 
did he simply never do that in <laughs> that scene? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they ever had that conversation, obviously, but I'm sure there had to be some kind of meeting of the minds between, uh, you know, Sam Presti and, and Donovan about, hey, this is what we've done and what we've done well with these two guys. So we don't want to change to, you know, we don't want to make too dramatic a change to what we've done, but we need to improve it in terms of making sure we get the right shots at crunch time, you know, down the stretch of games. Because to me, that's where the Thunder's always been, uh, you know, they, they've been a feast of famine bunch, you know, trying to win critical games in the playoffs, even though what have you. If you can't finish games properly, if you can't get the right shots and make the right decisions at the end of games, I don't know how you make that leap from a contender to an actual champion. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Golden State played a game early this season in Philadelphia where they're getting everything they can handle from one of the worst teams in the league. At the end of the game, they need a shot. So Steph Curry has the ball. He gets trapped. He throws it to Draymond Green at the top of the circle. And Draymond has the option of either throwing it to Clay Thompson on the left wing or throwing it to Harrison Barnes in the right corner for a shot. And you have to have guys with the basketball IQ to make those decisions from the pass Stephen Curry makes when he gets trapped to Draymond's decision. And, you know, he hit Harrison Barnes in the corner. Harrison Barnes made the shots won the game. I don't think the Thunder never even get to that point where there's a second decision to be made on a set at crunch time in the game because they have one of two guys who's usually going to take a shot without making a pass. And, until you can change that fundamental way of operating, I don't know that Billy Donovan or the Ghost of Red Arbach or anybody else can change that, you know, change that DNA about this team. Well, I mean, I guess that's the chicken or the egg question because clearly the Warriors have the system. They have an offense that is predicated on that. And it, the Thunder don't, even in, you know, in the beginning of the game, right? Like we rarely see them actually do any kind of flow motion, you know, weak side screening and uh, multiple passes. So that I feel like is the issue in why, why it's not there. I mean, so, you know, but the question that arises, well, you know, who is determining, you know, because again, we know what Billy Donovan knows and we know what he likes to run. I mean, clearly, you know, his, his resume is pretty full from Florida. So, so that's that's the weird thing I can't quite get straight in my head is that they, Donovan has that system certainly with you know ball movement and, and helping players and helping the role players uh, use the gravity of the stars to get better shots, but it doesn't happen. And so I guess you know is it is it is it simply that what you said with with Presti and the discussion they probably had was you know we're not going to do anything radical here. I would assume, and I, and I also think it has a lot to do with the fact that for as many times as they don't make those plays down the stretch. Durant Westbrook, they, they also make them a bunch, you know. They also make those hero shots enough to the point where you don't want to discourage them from playing that way because it's been so successful. Everybody talks about the strides Russell Westbrook has made as a decision maker and a facilitator, but I still think he takes way too many opportunities that are one-on-one plays that don't lift his team up. You know, it certainly makes him look good, and he's a great player. Nobody would deny that. But if I'm going to have a point guard in this league in this era – I need him to be able to make as many plays for other people as he does for himself. And I, and I use Steph as my, as my example. Like, you know, I know people say, well, Steph's not really a point guard because he gives the ball up so much and runs off screen and, you know, plays off the ball as much as he does. So that's traditionally not a point guard's role. But in this day and age, your point guard is not a guy who's going to pound the ball for, for 16 seconds and then decide to do something with it. I mean, you, you're going to have to give it up to get it back, to facilitate or to take a shot or create for yourself or somebody else. And I think Steph's an underrated passer and facilitator. I think he doesn't get enough credit for being that kind of player. And I think a guy like Russell Westbrook, who averages, you know, 10, 10 and a half assists a game, 
people assume he's making plays for other people all the time. But that's really, when you think about his usage rate and the fact that he's got the ball in his hand so much, he should be expected to dish out, uh, the, you know, 10 dimes a night. I mean, that should be guaranteed given how much he's got the ball in his hand. You know what's funny is I was talking about this the other day about the notion of like the, the team dynamic, you know, you strip away the stats and the numbers and whatever. And, you know, there's there's still a team where guys have to get along. Right. And, you know, what I, a point I made about Steph was that if you're going to, you know, the shots that he takes are kind of crazy. Right. Those are, you know, he'll pull from 40 feet, you know, for the game on, off the dribble without passing. And my point on that one was, was if you're going to do that, A, you got to make you got to make some and he certainly makes his share but i think almost as importantly you have to i think you have to be a nice guy you have to be a good teammate and that guys like because you know if those big guys are you know hustling down the court to get position and all of a sudden bam there goes this 40 foot shot before they even you know get halfway through that could wear on a team if if you're not you know a great teammate and I don't know exactly how Russ is in the locker room, but I have a feeling that if you certainly what I see on the court and how he treats his play, his teammates sometimes, there definitely seems to be a big difference between the way Steph treats his teammates and then the way Russ treats his teammates. Would, would that be accurate? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not around either team enough to know exactly how those guys <laughs> treat other guys, but I, I think you can see the, the effects of it in games. Um, I was in Oklahoma City a couple months ago for a game they had against Milwaukee when and you don't see this on television you have to be in the arena and really i was sitting mm-hmm. in midcourt two rows back so i could see it clear as day how many times russell westbrook either breaks a set and just does his own thing or doesn't see the guy who's waving his arms on the other side of the floor wide open and right. i think when you get used to him playing that way as often as the thunder role players and even kevin durant to some extent as often as he does you become desensitized to it. You know, you kind of chalk it up to, well, he's going to do that, and he's going to make he's going to make 48% of those plays that he does that, you know, where he breaks the set and calls his own number. And that's that's enough success for you to say, hey, he's, he's making as many as he doesn't make, so we can't really complain. And he's a superstar. He's one of the superstar players in the league. I don't know that an Andre Roberson or Serge Ibaka – feels empowered to, to scream at Russell Westbrook and tell him, hey, you're, you're breaking down the defense and going one-on-four when I'm sitting in the, on the baseline for a wide-open shot. You know, there has to be that kind of rapport between teammates at every tier, you know, at every level on your team, from your superstars to your key role players to the marginal guys. If, if you don't have that kind of give and take, which I think when comparing Russell Westbrook and Steph, the, Steph and the Warriors certainly have that, whereas I'm not sure the Thunder have that kind of culture. Um, on their roster where they can can go at each other in that manner. Right. And by the way, I, I agree. And, and I don't think that Robertson would you know, ever have a place where he could do that and say something. But I'm not sure that would be his role either. To me, that would be the coach. That would be someone who is going through the game footage and pointing it out and trying to do it. Now, I liken it to, you know, what Greg Popovich did to Tony Parker because – you know, not that Tony Parker is that much like Russ physically, but when he came into the league, I think he had a similar, you know, uh, uh, approach to the game. And you you saw how, you know, Pop was pretty brutal on him. And as a result, Parker learned. And I feel like, and maybe now, because Parker was a 19-year-old, whatever, rookie from you know, another with another language, the whole thing, it was easier for Pop to do it that way. But uh, and, and now what we have Russ is, you know, Russ is what? 
Uh, he, he's in the league for five, six, seven years now. So th- th- you don't have that same in- influence. But that's what I feel like is missing. Um, and one of the prime examples was in the Warriors game down the stretch at a crucial time, they set a pin down for Durant. Maybe you remember this. And Russ decided to throw a really risky alley-oop to the, to the rim that was off. And Durant was stuck in the air. You, you know this play I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. And so, you know, and I pointed that out in our breakdown, which got a lot of views. And then, you know, mm-hmm. last night, the same thing. He throws the same lob and the same result. It went out of bounds. It's a turnover. And it was like, that would be an example for me where Donovan would have been like, listen, man, you know, it, it's 30 seconds left. We can't afford to throw a risky, you know, 40-foot alley-oop, you know, with the defense in the position. So that's what I'm thinking is not happening here. They're not, you know, no one's holding them accountable in the film room. I, I think that may have something to do with it. He also had, in that in that game against the Warriors last weekend, he, he also had two crash and burn drives, you know, late in the game. And um, mm-hmm. where he just went down, you know, he, he drove to the basket, threw up a wild shot, thought he was going to get a foul call, didn't, fell down, and didn't, you know, and then had to get back and, and was trailing the play on the defensive end. And to me, like, you can score 40 points, have 15 assists, eight rebounds and five steals. But if you get to the end of the game and you have plays, you know, two or three plays that lead directly to the other team coming back and or winning the game, to me, you've kind of poked a hole in whatever you did that night because when it was on the line, you didn't make the clutch plays. And there have been a number of point guards over the years that I've watched in the NBA, guys who, for whatever reason, in late-game situations, guys who are really good and great players sometimes who simply – go off the rails a bit like they just can't seem to corral themselves and, and really center themselves to make just a simple basketball play sometimes it's the simple extra pass bounce pass whatever that leads to the right shot and I and I my perfect example of that you brought up Tony Parker is the way the Spurs played when they beat the Heat in the finals a few years ago they were mm-hmm. making the extra excellent right pass instead of one guy taking a shot because he thought, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm a great player. I got this shot. I'll take it. You sacrifice that to get a better shot or, to, you know, for better opportunities, regardless of who's taking the shot. And I don't think the Thunder have, have ever given in to that style of basketball that, hey, you know, I'm Kevin Durant. I can shoot from 30 feet away. Why would I break the defense down and dish to somebody else who might make another pass, you know, a second pass to get an easier shot, a layup, a dunk? Uh, you know, a float or whatever, um, when when that's the way you play, it's hard to break that habit, especially when you've had success playing that way. You know, I wish I wish we could argue more <laughs> because that makes for interesting <laughs> podcasting. But, but um, you know, I've been saying that for years, and the people call me a Russell Westbrook hater, and I would say, well, what good is all that amazing stuff when he does those four plays down the stretch that cost the game? He might as well, you know, he might as well not done the other good stuff. Uh, and it's it's really you know it, it you know as a from a coaching perspective it gets infuriating and let me throw this out there because you know I you like numbers and I know you're hanging out with John Schumann who's got all the numbers and there was the the rationale for Russ because you know when you're talking about the out of control stuff to the basket you know he's he's kind of a below average finisher at the rim and what I see is a guy who is generally out of control off balance the footwork is usually pretty wonky. And and when I respond to that is like, well, he should just be in the gym like me in the summers and like working on that. And anyway, the argument against that and to say that why he's still so elite is that it's the actual volume of drives to the basket. He gets the basket more than other players. And that 
sort of mitigates any of the finishing issues he has. And I, I just have to I scratch my head at that notion at the very least. I'm kind of curious what your take on it is. Yeah, I think a part of it is, it's like I said, to me, I, like, I compare Russ, Russell Westbrook to a, and this is an analogy that a lot, yeah, a lot of people probably wouldn't connect, but to me, he's a lot like a, a dual-threat quarterback in football. Um, if he's got the ball in his hands all the time and it's his job to either throw a pass or hand the ball off or call his own number, and, you know, you see him make four or five plays when he calls his own number that are big plays, but you don't account for the six or seven times that he does that and he doesn't gain a yard or the times when he does that and he's, you know, checking out of a, a pass play to a run play to call his own number and you miss a receiver that could be wide open. You know what I mean? It's, it's all about the number of possessions you have and how many of them you maximize the possession. You know, you, you involve as much of your, your teammates and exhaust as much of the defensive uh, you know, s- sustainability that the other team has, you end up really negating what your true gifts are, you know. And to me, Russ is such a great pull-up jump shooter and a, and a guy who's strong enough and athletic enough to finish at the rim when he sees fit that he sometimes just literally calls his own number more often than he should. Um, and and mm-hmm. I, like I said, his, his assist numbers are misleading because he – He's got the ball so much. Of course, he has ten assists tonight because he, you know he's not going to take every shot. But right, you, he needs to think more like a facilitator is what it boils down to. And I think that's a hard thing to do when you're as good as he is and as gifted as he is and as confident as he is in his own abilities to finish. You know, here's what I was thinking. You know, with with the Bulls, they didn't have a a, a point guard, a traditional point guard, um, but they had Scottie Pippen. And, um, you know, even the Lakers, too, or like a lot of these teams, you know, or even like the LeBron James teams, uh, you know, they, they had LeBron. And so my take on it is you don't need a traditional point guard from like the shortest guy on the court who's going to do that. You just need it from somebody has to be that facilitator, right? That Scotty who can kind of galvanize and keep everyone on the same page and make the extra pass. So that's why I've always been arguing that Russ is like the second or third best shooting guard in the league but shouldn't have the role that he's playing. And I always felt like even way back in the Eric Maynard days, they'd play Maynard and Russell together, and that always looked a lot better, and it seemed to create easier shots for everybody. And so my whole thing is, you know, maybe that's the solution that would put them over the edge is to find someone that could simply be that facilitator. And by the way, we've seen Kevin Durant be that guy. Remember when Russ went out and he was – the Scottie Pippen guy. He was facilitating. He was scoring. He did everything. He was awesome. He won the MVP. And um, I feel like that is when they can overcome the issues is when Russ isn't uh, in that position. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Eric Maynard. We were talking about him the other night, you know, that he had just kind of disappeared into the ether. Like, I, you know, I don't even remember when it is he fell out of the league. Um, mm-hmm. But he was, to me, the. I, I think they felt like – that might be the best way to maximize what Russ did. And in doing so, they, you know, they tried it and Russ maybe wasn't as comfortable with it as they liked. And, and they decided to give him the ball and let him run with it. But the the interesting thing you point out is when, and this is my argument for why Kevin Durant ranks higher on my MVP ladder that I do every week on NBA.com and why I think he's still a better player overall than Russ is that when he went, when Russ went down, Kevin Durant, showed you the, the full depth of his game. And like you said, he could be a facilitating 
elite scorer and won an MVP, and they make you know they make the playoffs. When Durant was down last year, and Russ was asked to do the same thing to fill that void, he put up crazy numbers, but the Thunder didn't make you know they they couldn't make that progression right. you know without Kevin Durant. And that's not a knock on Russ's game so much as it is a knock on Scotty Brooks and whoever's coaching him that he can't get the the right buttons pushed to get Russell to play in a way that elevates the rest of the team. And I think anytime you have a guy who's, a, who's an unquestioned great player, like everybody in the league would agree, Russell Westbrook's a great player by any measure and definition. But his fatal flaw, you know, those guys often have one thing about them that, that drags them back down. And to me, it's not about vision. It's not about ability. It's not about comprehension of the fundamentals of basketball. It's just about simply the, the decision-making from play to play that either allows you to excel or allows that periphery player to excel. It's what made Michael Jordan great to me, is that he wasn't afraid to make the right pass at the right time in, you know, at, at moments that his team needed mm-hmm. for, for them to be elevated as a group. And I think that's something you have to really have in your game. It's very hard to develop that. That's something that either is in you as a basketball player or it's not. And again, I bring up Steph only because he and Russell Westbrook play the same position. I watched Steph here in Atlanta uh, against the Hawks on a Monday night and everybody was dazzled by his shooting, but he had three or four plays that he made one for Sean Livingston on a curl to the basket in transition where he saw, and I was sitting up high enough where I could see the whole floor from baseline to baseline. I could see plays develop from above before, you know, you would see him Mm -hmm. looking at the game from a different perspective. And Steph was making the plays with his vision. And because that's the kind of player he is that were two and three steps ahead of the defense that got his teammates great looks that I don't think Russell Westbrook makes on a consistent basis. I I agree. And I, and I, again, I I just can't help but be drawn back, drawn back to the notion of, of the, of the coaching and whether or not, um, you know, if it's an issue where Russ doesn't let the coach coach, um, you know, like he breaks in, breaking off plays. And, and let me just make an interesting parallel, because remember, Michael, you know, has a very similar path to what Russ is going through now yeah. in the beginning of his career. And so without the, the benefit of another guy on that team, you know, uh, like like Durant. But remember, until Phil got there, they were had a ceiling. And they were never going to overcome the top two or three teams, the Pistons and the Celtics and whoever else they had to go against then until they, you know, Phil Jackson came in and put his finger on, you know, you, you, there's no doubting the influence that Tex Winter and Phil Jackson had on that team to get them to the next level. And there's actually the same, by the way, how about a parallel between Kobe and Shaq in LA before Phil got there? Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a great S- similar point. idea. So now we have a similarity coaching, here where coaching is such yeah. a big part of it. You know, I think there's no doubt about it. You know, people talk about, you know, well, you know, it's a player's league and superstars rule, but yeah, the superstars that have won championships usually do it with an elite coach. You know, I can't tell you the last time a team won a championship with a coach who was seen as kind of just a clipboard holder and, and a guy who got out of the way of his stars. That doesn't happen. Even, mm-hmm. even if you go back to Rudy Tomjanovich, with the, with those Rockets teams that won championships. And I don't think he got as much credit at the time as people give him now after we've seen, you know, the the retrospectives and some of the, you know, the 30 for 30 type things that have been done about that team, you know, years later that you realize how much he changed the way they played, you know, and how much 
he changed the way Elijah Wan played and, and involved his teammates and turned that around. I mean, it takes every superstar player to figure out when he's going to share the ball and share the responsibility for a team to break through to that level. And, I, you know, Kobe's a great example. Um, not with the Kobe and Shaq teams, but with the teams he played on after that that won championships. Everybody knows that Kobe, you know, got the finals MVP or whatever and, you know, did all the dance afterwards. But in game seven of the finals in 2010, <laughs> he shot six of 24, I believe it was, from the floor and was on his yeah. way to one of the worst shooting performances a great player had had in the finals. And mm-hmm. he had to be rescued by Pau Gasol and Ron Artest, who made big shots and made big plays to get them the victory. I, I was sitting three rows from the floor uh, next to Sean Powell, who was, you know, one of my colleagues at NBA.com. And we were, we were literally both discussing and writing Kobe's, you know, I mean, we were writing his obit. We were like, this guy's getting ready to go down in, in flames in one of the worst shooting performances we've ever seen in a big yep. moment. But he got rescued by teammates who were there to make plays that he couldn't. And that's just the way, it, I mean, that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. And it, and it was the system though, that enabled some of those shots. Fisher got a three because, you know, there is spacing and angles and, you know, you have, you have yeah. it, you know, even for however much Kobe, you know, bristled against the triangle all those years, you know, he, he was able to exist in enough, never as well as Michael, but still. So I think that's, here we are in the same kind of crossroads and, I, and I, it's too bad because now we're looking at Hoiberg in Chicago. And, again, Hoiberg knows basketball really well. His, he has the resume to prove that he knows how to get teams to play the right way. Uh, Donovan, even more so. And yet they're getting hammered here. And, I, of course, I'm going to be biased for, for coaches, right? I get to be biased because I'm, I'm, I'm not coming from a journalistic standpoint necessarily. But, uh, you know, sure. I, I just feel like they're getting railroaded here because – you know, they come in, they probably have a huge playbook. They have great ideas. They're going to do this and do that. And then either from the beginning or as we go on, move along, you know, the, the coaches, are, you know, uh, they get so much resistance from it, from either the players or the management or everybody, and they can't do what they know they can do. I, you know, I mean, let, let's go all the way back to um, to David Blatt, you know. David Blatt probably was, was unable to do anything he wanted to do from the get-go. And um, and it's really it's just frustrating because I think, you know, you can't be a player coach in today's NBA. I, I just think that would be way too hard. I know even however much LeBron does that, um, I feel like you need, you know, the coach. And and so um, that's the interesting thing is that these the college coaches are getting a real black eye here. And uh, I, I guess I'm waiting for the tell all book. Are you going to write that book from the, the Thunders tell all? <laughs> no. you, you and Sean? I doubt they'll let me write that book uh, after this. <laughs> You know, I mean, LeBron's another perfect example of a team having to win or lose by virtue of how their best player decides to play in that realm. You know, LeBron, I, I, th- I thought this was very interesting. La- during the finals last year, when he was playing at that un- otherworldly dominant level where he was just manhandling the Warriors and forcing the action and controlling everything, Um it was Cleveland's one advantage, having the ball in his hands with him deciding either he makes the play or he creates the opportunity for somebody else to make a play. And after he was quizzed, you know, after we questioned him about it, and reporters kept bringing it up, like, is this the way they're going to beat this team with LeBron shouldering this huge load? It was almost like he didn't want to play to that 
narrative. Like he didn't want it to be about him. He didn't want it to be a situation where well, it was all about LeBron taking over and dragging this team. You know, he started trying to make plays for other people and not being as aggressive and going after the, you know, opportunities for himself from games three to six. And I thought, and it wasn't necessarily just in the numbers, but it was just the, the tone of how he played after that became the narrative three games in that I thought shifted that series back into Golden State's favor. Um, when LeBron decided, you know what, it's not about me dominating the ball. And, you know, he, it was almost like he, he was sensitive to the idea that, yeah, the only way they're going to win is if LeBron puts his team on his shoulders and does all the work. And, and it was like a, a switch that flipped. Like he was like, whoa, whoa. I don't, that's not, I'm not that player. I don't want to be that player. I want to be the guy who wins like I won in Miami where it's, you know, the, the huh. responsibility is spread out. And he didn't have a Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and a Ray Allen to help share that load in Cleveland. I, I thought that was one of the reasons why Golden State was able to regain their equilibrium and, and finish the Cavaliers off the way they did. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, we, maybe we can argue about this. This, this could be an argument. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I guess – I still saw a whole lot of, you know, uh, left elbow back down isolation in those, you know, games three through six. Um, and, you know, we did a breakdown where we actually only went through the out of timeout plays where typically the coach has the most influence, right? He's got the clipboard, he draws the play, they go out of the timeout and they run it. And, you know, the Warriors ended up running their out-of-bounds plays at a, an elite clip uh, as far as efficiency by per, by per possession, uh, where the, you know, the Cavaliers typically would do some sort of ISO that didn't help his gravity open up shots for anybody else. It was, you never, we saw those pictures where it was a wall, right? There was like three or four players along the lane line on the weak side just standing there waiting for him. And um, so that that and, and again, let's go back to that. So we all know what Blatt's offense looked like and what he did. There is no way in hell you'd ever be able to convince me that Blatt was like, oh, OK, yeah, we're going to do this ISO stuff with LeBron the whole time. And that's the only way of winning. Like, I just I would never believe that he would say that, you know? Yeah, I don't think it. But that's just it. I don't know that it's something you have to say again. It's when you have star players in the NBA, you can take this all the way back you know, to, to the Oscar Robertson days. When you have a, a superstar player who's a dominant scoring machine, a guy who can get buckets at will or, or create offense at will, it's it becomes inherent upon the coach to either rest away that control and decide, hey, we're going to run. This is the system we're going to run, and we're going to be devoted to it, married to it, and we're not going to deviate just because you're a great player and you can – do this when you feel like it, you know, and there, and there's yeah. often this, this trepidation, I think by coaches to literally, you know, drop a play and then your star player gets on the floor and just makes a, an unbelievable play that only a handful of guys could make. And you're willing to abandon that. That's what makes Greg Popovich such a good coach to me. And what made the Spurs dismantling of the heat in the finals. So unbelievable is that they, they refused to depart from the ball sharing, mm-hmm. you know, offense that they had, you know, just, you know, played to perfection. They, they, I mean, it was one of the most beautiful displays of, you know, basketball I'd seen in, in all my years watching to see them mm-hmm. do it and to stay, to stay devoted to it from the beginning of that series to the end. It, it, to me, it took down 
this idea that you could win a championship, you couldn't win a championship playing like that. That you had to have a ball dominant player in charge of how you won. I mean, and, and the, the Spurs did it to perfection. I thought Golden State played similar to that last year in that it was a group effort. Everybody had moments where they became a, a key component in that cog of how they were going to win that series. Um, Clay Thompson, who's had a great season last year and is one of the best players in the league. If you go back and look at it, he did not play particularly well in the finals. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't one of his better stretches. And that's why, to me, you see the Warriors come back this year and be so much better is because they really – they didn't hit their stride in the finals, I didn't think, last year. They hit their stride this season during that 24-0 start where you really saw Harrison Barnes before he got injured and Clay Thompson play lights out. And, and of course, Draymond Green yep. improved from where he was last year. And Steph actually – get better from last year, which is stunning for a guy to win an MVP, win a title, and actually take his game to another level. You know, I I agree. I, I feel like, but I, I can't help but think that it's, you know, the system is, is so key as well because, remember, these guys played together before that for a few years or a couple of years, and, and, and clearly there was a ceiling with the way they were running their offense and doing things uh, under Mark Jackson. And, um, and you know, now we get to see that. Now, I mean, like, to even give you an example, you know, they got to start their season working on the secondary actions of their offense. They had gotten it in the first year. They won the championship. And, you know, I don't know how many teams coming into training camp have this continuity and, the, you know, the ability to go in there and say, okay, we're just going to spend time on what happens when they deny that first pass. Like that was just the, the – that, and that's the level that we're seeing them do, but it's the underlying – uh, philosophy and fundamentals of what they do on, on offense. Uh, let me ask you this. I got into a lot of trouble on Twitter real quick about this before we wrap up. Um, I actually tweeted out uh, the college experience of all the players on the Warriors. And I said, it's no coincidence that almost, you know, every role player, every, every rotational player they have played at least two and mostly three, four years in college. Um, and everybody freaked out at me and saying, it's, it, of course it's a coincidence and I think what they misunderstood was I was trying to say that here's a team that's running high level, highest IQ of all time kind of stuff on both ends of the floor. And they share and they're selfless. And I say that there definitely has to be a connection to playing multiple years in college and getting that foundation. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's no question to me that the ability to play within a, the framework of an offense. And there, there are some teams that, that do that and others that don't. Um, I thought that's what led to the Atlanta Hawks having the great season they had last year, that they found they hit on all these guys who really understood the, the concept of playing within the framework of how they wanted, you know, the coach wanted to run his system. That mm-hmm. takes more than just superstar talent. It takes superstar basketball IQ. And that's something that I think Andre Iguodala has in a, a surplus of Harrison Barnes, Leandro Barbosa, who didn't go to play college basketball but certainly has played in enough different you know venues and and scenarios where he had to be a cog in the system and not just the ball dominant guy um you know but certainly Steph playing as many years in college as he did Clay Thompson Bogut you know Draymond Green being a four-year guy at Michigan State there's just an understanding of of sacrificing whatever you may do best or whatever you may want to do for the greater good that allows you to implement the kind of system that Steve Kerr brought to 
that team last year. And, yes, Mark Jackson deserves a ton of credit for the Warriors getting to a certain level. But there's all, I say this all the time about coaching. You could be a good coach. You could be a great coach. But you might not be the right coach for a group of guys at a certain stage. And to me, Steve Kerr was the right coach at that time to help the Warriors push to that next level. When when your guys like Clay Thompson and Steph, when they've evolved to where they were last year, and I watched him. I was in Spain when they were over there for the World Championships uh, or the World Cup, excuse me. And John Schuman and I were there covering the entire event, and we were stunned at how good Clay Thompson was. And I was like, you know, Jerry West or whoever you know talked them out of trading Clay for for Kevin Love was so right in terms of how valuable a guy like Clay Thompson would be in that system because of mm-hmm. his ability to play off the ball and knock down shots and play at a high level on the defensive end. It's like those are things you don't learn, unfortunately, strictly playing NBA basketball. Some of those fundamental tenets of the game have to be learned in a college environment where you spend an inordinate amount of time working on those things as opposed to just going to a gym every day and working with somebody and getting shots up and, and trying to figure out how to beat a man off the dribble. And so, you know, there have to be some serious basketball ABCs that you've learned. I think Draymond Green obviously has learned them, you know, more than anyone playing under Tom Izzo, a guy who's done it repeatedly in terms of producing, you know, three- and four-year college guys when you see them at the next level and they show so many of those qualities. Um, So, yeah, I I think I wouldn't – I'm not going to get in a Twitter war with anybody about that. I'll let you handle that, but I certainly think it's it's a good (laughs) point about a group of guys and how you learn how to play. And think about it. We talked a lot about the Thunder today. They don't have a bunch of guys who were three- and four-year college players on their roster. They they have guys who either spent a year in college, some spent a limited amount of time in college and weren't even starters, but they were Mm -hmm. so ridiculously talented, you just assumed they would make the transition to the pro level and be able to absorb all of those fundamental things you need to understand about playing in the system as opposed to just playing on an all-star team, which is what a lot of – you look at the league and look at a lot of these games, there are guys who can get great numbers and they look fantastic doing it. But you ask yourself when it's over, did his performance elevate his team in any way? And a lot of times the answer is no. You know, if I could go back in, the time, back in time and, and sort of understand the rationale because, you know, Russ come, comes out of UCLA having not played that much, didn't certainly didn't really play point guard. And I just – it just kind of boggled my mind that, like, they instantly – you know, he's going to be a point guard having never played it at college and, you know, never really had that experience. And that just seems – of all the positions to try and do that for, that just is weird. And, you know, we're seeing it again with Zach Levine in Minnesota – in a way that uh, it's just it's just weird to me when you look at it to 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 talk about you know the coaching thing again real quick I mean you're talking about Lou Olson Rick Majerus Roy Williams Bob McKillop Tom Izzo I mean though like, like I didn't want to say on Twitter that it's the only way to build a championship team of course you could have t- one and duns full you know full and win a championship but you know but my point was if you want to play the way the Warriors are playing <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, and like totally you just described, different. you know, that, that, and, and not only the way they're playing, it's just the environment. I've been around them and you can tell it's not, it's no, it's no hocus pocus fake, you know, to the media stuff. This is the real deal. These guys treat each other with respect. They like playing with each other. They're all like good teammates. 
Um, and that, that, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I just know that deep down in my heart that it's, there's a connection there between what they have and how they did it. And the fact that these guys played, you know, college basketball for some of the most, you know, the best coaches around, um, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's I'm glad I can make that point here at least because certainly on 140 characters, I guess it, it's real hard to, to make that happen. Um, well, I'll, let's wrap up real I'll quick. Finish with, I'll oh, yeah? finish with this. Yeah. I'll finish with this on that same vein. Um, Sam Presti doesn't need my help building the team, but if I wanted to get the most out of Russell Westbrook, I would take a page out of Ben Howland's book, and I would have signed Darren Collison at some point to be my point guard, mm-hmm. and I would have played Russ off the ball and seen how I yep. fared with, with that kind of backcourt. And to me, that's not a knock on whoever's coaching Russell Westbrook now. It's an, a nod to somebody who figured out how to use him in the best way possible. Um, by complimenting him with a with a traditional point guard who could facilitate the plays we're talking about and take that responsibility away from Russ, so I agree with you. I, I think Absolutely. there's there's something to be learned from a guy's college experience and his transition to the pros that often is kind of dismissed by pro coaches because they don't have the same respect for the college game that maybe you or I or some other people do. Right. Well, I, before we wrap up, I want to make sure I thank our sponsor, No Halftime. It's a great uh, daily fantasy uh, mobile app. It's one-on-one, so you can only be Harden versus Durant versus having to deal with all those complicated lineups. So thanks to No Halftime, a great mobile app. And, uh, Seiko, who do you have tonight? What, who's going to win this game between the Warriors and the Thunder? Uh, I would be a fool to pick against the Warriors this season, um, especially when they're playing on their home floor. So I'm definitely going with the Warriors. And I think the Thunder need it even more than the Warriors who are trying to get the 73 wins. They need it for the psyche of their group, I think, just to, you know, to Mm -hmm. beat an elite team and show themselves that they are who they think they are. But uh, I I think, you know, when in doubt, go with the champs. And the Warriors have, you know, you lose five games all, all this time. There's no reason to pick against you. I hear you. Now, the only narrative could very well be that if uh, Curry or Iggy don't play, then there's that out for the Thunder. They can win, and but yet it doesn't mean anything because of that. So it's a, probably a no-win situation for them, <laughs> and uh, we'll have to find out. But I certainly hope – I hope – I want to see better basketball. It frustrates me. I don't get any pleasure at all from watching the Thunder do what they did the last couple of times against the, you know, the Warriors last time the Clippers. Yeah, the, the Thunder need – they need them. Um, a psychological win as much as they need to win on the scoreboard. That I think that's something that's going to be on their minds now if they keep dropping games to the other elite teams around the league and especially in the West. For sure. I mean, there's, there's some damning numbers right now against the top teams that we're going to release today in our breakdown. So, uh, you know, Seku, thanks so much for coming out here and joining me on the podcast. Uh, it's a long time coming. I'm glad we can hang out a little bit. This was great. And uh, you'll have to, you know, come on again and we'll, we'll chop it up again. I think we solved some problems here. <laughs> no doubt, Coach. Appreciate you. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Seku? I'm all with you. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. 
Bok, bok, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Stores. 